Uh, we're going to be focusing on Parashat Bereshit, as we said, even though technically this week is Parashat Noach, but we didn't want to be in a, uh, in a position where we started a, a series on Parashat HaShavua that we skipped the first Parashat because that seems to be unfair, you know, to miss out on the first and maybe the most fundamental, one could argue, uh, Parashat of the, of the year that sets the tone for the entire Torah. We're going to miss that when we have a series on Parashat HaShavua. So we're going to, um, we're going to focus on Parashat uh, Bereshit this week. And eventually... Eventually, God willing, we'll keep up with the series and we'll be able to, um, uh, to catch up with the Parashat of the Week, which I believe we were able to do last year. We did the same thing. We uh, started with Parashat Bereshit a week late. And eventually, at some point, we were able to, uh, we were able to be at the current Parashat. I don't remember exactly how we did that, but we, we did pull it off, I recall. So in any case, we're going to talk about Parashat Bereshit. And I think that last year... I spoke about the most common topic, at least the most common topic in my experience, that's addressed in, addressed in Parashat Bereshit, which is Adam and Chava. I think the creation of Adam and Chava is maybe the most intriguing and, and the story of Gan Eden. Uh, and I've spoken about it many times in many different contexts. And I feel like it's something that, uh, um, that, that's explored a lot and that we've explored a lot. So I thought that it might, be, might behoove us to uh, focus on a different element of the Parashat, an element that... Uh, I myself neglected over the years because uh, it's so interesting and captivating, the story of Gan Eden. It seems so fundamental. Um, you know, it's, it's about human nature. It's about the, the makeup of, uh, of humanity. And it's about the, the, the essential human conflict being a, a creature of God and yet having this, this ability to think and to will independently of God and how we, how we manage that, how we balance that. Um, and Adam and Chava are a subject to the ultimate trial, which is the question of whether they will decide what is good. They will choose the good that God has determined as good, which means understanding God, God's will and understanding God's wisdom. And, and based upon that, uh, ascertaining what is good or whether they will decide that whatever they feel is good. In other words, they will be the ones to define goodness. They will be the ones to, to, to create the standard by which everything will be measured. That's the essential story of Gan Eden, and really that is the essential story of the Torah, really. I mean, that, that's why it's the first story in the Torah. Because the main question that faces every human being is, who is going to define what's actually good for me in my life? Am I going to invent the definition of good based upon my own sense of what feels good or what I desire? Or am I going to hearken to, adhere to, a, uh, a, a something higher than myself. What God has determined, what Hashem has determined is truly good based upon His design and His plan. And that's the whole thing. When the Bereshit, we read this days of creation, Elohim Kitov, God saw this was good, God saw that was good. good. Of course, it never says that God saw that human beings were good. It just says, Lotov Adam It's not good for him to be alone, but I never said he was good. Right? So, because our goodness is, is, is only in terms of the choices that we make. Whether they are in accordance with God's will or not. We're not inherently good. Our choices are what define us as good or bad. We are unique uh, among all the other creatures of, of earth because all other creatures are, are hardwired to function in the way that God willed, except for human beings that have free choice and therefore may function in a way that's contrary to the way that, 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 that Hashem intended. So that's really the main conflict of human existence. And that's why it's the first story of Bereshit, because that, that's really, the, everything boils down to that question. Even when we read the Avodav Yom Kippur, when we introduce the Avodav Yom Kippur, it starts out with Adam and Chava, and the sin of, uh, of, of, the, uh, of Adam and Chava, the introduction to the service of Yom Kippur and the Musaf. 
and the, 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 that, that provides you know, atonement for the Jewish people starts out with the story of the original sin, quote-unquote. It's not really a Jewish concept, the original sin in that sense. But the first sin, which was the decision to define goodness based upon a human standard instead of based upon a divine standard. That is the, really the essence of every mistake and every sin. And, and, and that's why Adam and Chava, whether you take the story of Adam and Chava as a metaphor, you take it as a symbolism, you take it as an expression of human nature, you take it as an event that really happened, it doesn't even matter. That's, the, that's the, what's so incredible about the Torah. It doesn't even matter. You still come out with the same result. That that is the essential conflict that every human being faces. So we can understand the significance of Adam and Chava. And I think I've talked about it many, many times. And, and, and we've, we've, we've gone back and forth over it over the years. So what I wanted to discuss this year that was a little bit different than I had actually mentioned to John we were talking about the other day. But it's something that I haven't invested much time in. And I haven't really discussed the story in too much detail in past years. So I thought it was a good time to, uh, to explore it. And that's the story that comes right after the story, more or less, of Adam and Chava. Which is the story of Cain and Heaven. I, I touched upon it also even in my speech on Shabbat because it's something that I feel we don't talk about very much. And I have a, I have a theory about why we don't talk about the story of, Adam, of, of, of Hevel and Cain so much. Not just because it's not as dramatic. It doesn't involve any talking snakes. There are no magical fruits or anything like that. So maybe it's a little bit less, um, uh, you know, a little bit less uh, uh, mysterious. You know, it doesn't have that same uh, enchanted feeling. But everything in Parashat Bereshit, in my opinion at least, Everything in Parashat Bereshit has a certain, I don't want to, and I don't mean this in the, don't take this the wrong way, like a mythical quality to it. Meaning that there's something about it otherworldly. I don't mean myth in the sense of not true. I mean there's something otherworldly and timeless about the stories of Bereshit. You don't feel like that in Avraham Avinu, he lives in a certain place, he moves from here to there, he's interacting with people, he's fighting wars, he's having kids, it just seems like, he lives in the world that we live in. Obviously, he's much greater than us, but he lives in the world that we live in. The stories in, in Breshit are like in a different world. They're otherworldly. In that sense, quote-unquote mythical. They don't have the same feel. You know, there are spinning swords of fire and angels guarding a garden that has these trees that are these incredible trees. I mean, there's all kinds of elements to the story that are unusual. And even the introduction of the story of Hevel and Cain is, Vahim yamim. At the end of the at the end of days, what does it mean? Vahimi Ketsyamim. It's a strange. It's almost like non-committal in terms of how much time has passed. When did this occur? Uh, exactly how much time? How old are Hevel and Cain when the conflict between them emerges? It never tells you anything about their background. You don't know anything. Hevel doesn't seem to have any children. Obviously, because we don't know if he had. Uh, you know, he had a, uh, a wife, but it definitely never mentions him having any children. Hevel only Cain. So. It's just, there's, it's shrouded in mystery, the story, so much. But it's a story that I think the reason why, number one, it's not as enchanting of a story as Adam and Chava. There haven't, I, I don't recall, you know, as much, let's say, cultural uh, focus on it. Even in, let's say, in Western culture, there's all these different depictions of Adam and Chava in the garden, and there's such a big deal made out of it. But I don't think Hevel and Kain. And also there's the fact that, and this is, I think, more basic than that, that what is the significance of the story? In other words, we read the story of Adam and Chavan, we say, this is a story that speaks to the essence of what it means to be a human being. Whether it's a snake tempting you, or it's your own inner drive tempting you, or whatever it is, or it's your nature that you can't escape, whatever it is, human beings are confronted with this existential issue of what kind of life to choose, what is truly good, versus what they desire. What should they do? 
That's what every human being from, their, you know, from the moment they're born till the moment they die is grappling with. We get why that's essential. Hevel and Cain, what is the significance of their story that it's so important? Other, except for the biographical detail to know or the historical detail to know why only there were descendants of Cain that were destroyed in the Mabul. Other than that, what do I need to know Hevel and Cain's story for? It's a dispute between two brothers. One killed the other. It's a bad thing. What exactly is fundamental about the story? It doesn't have the same feeling of being fundamental. And I think that's part of the reason we don't spend as much time. To my mind, you know, in my experience, the reason why it's not, you hear people refer all the time to the story of Adam and Chavaz, this fundamental story. Oh, you know, that goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. It's so fundamental. But you don't oftentimes hear, this goes all the way back to Hevel and Cain. This is the essential, what is the essential lesson of the story? Yeah, what did you want to say? Yeah, Right, oh, right, sure, you hear that. And, and I remember that in when, I, when, when I went to the Holocaust Museum in, in, in Washington, D.C., it's a very great, it's a, it's a great museum. I hope that everyone's been to it, or, uh, and if you haven't, you, you, should, you should visit it. It's a, it's, a, it's a great museum, very, very powerful experience to go. At the end, they have a room that's sort of like this meditation room, and it has the pasuk. I just thought it's very moving. It says, Me'asita. You know, that what have you done? Like, it's like a rebuke to the perpetrators of the Holocaust, all of them, you know? What have you done? You're, the blood of your brother is crying out from the earth. It's a very powerful, it's a very, very powerful placement of that pasuk. Even though that pasuk is obviously talking about one person, which is Hevel, but the, the, the message of like how aghast God must be to see, you know, this carnage, it, it's very powerful. So, but, but the idea is this, that I think that Hevel and Cain, yes, there's a sense of brotherly conflict, there's a sense of, you know, the evil of murder, but why is it at the very beginning of the Torah, what is so essential that the Torah has to introduce to us this concept from the very beginning? It, it doesn't seem as necessary as the story of Adam and Chava, that two people kill each other. I mean, we, every single moment of your life, you're struggling with the same thing that Adam and Chava struggled with. Every minute of your life, you're, you're struggling with it. But I don't think every minute of your life you're struggling with killing somebody, let alone your family member. Maybe sometimes you say, I want to kill you or I'm going to kill you, but you don't mean it, hopefully. Right? So, and, 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 and you don't do it. Right? So what, what, is, the, what is so essential about the story? That's what, that, that's what I'd like to, to try to see. Now, if we turn to, uh, it's actually um, not on page two, even though you might, uh, it, it is towards the beginning. It is on page 18 in here. Um, she has Cain and she says man has acquired God meaning that there or with God depending on how you interpret it but it means to say that human beings have a divine ability um, their divine ability they, they recognize a creative capacity that they have an animal also can reproduce but a human being is conscious of that in a way that an animal is not conscious of that, the ability to reproduce. Just like a, a, a human being is conscious of the ability to, to, to bring uh, sustenance, to, to, to plant and to harvest. And, and this is why the curses of Adam and Chava relate to the areas in which they're most likely to view themselves as divine beings. Adam is in the area of work. 
the area of conquering the environment, that in order to remember that you are not a divine being, you are a creature of God, it's going to be frustrating and it's going to have many obstacles and there's going to, it's not going to be easy for you. And in the area of bringing life into the world for a woman, it's going to be difficult for you because if it were so easy, then you would fancy yourself, you would imagine yourself a kind of a divine being and therefore in these areas you are thwarted to a certain extent. Work is never easy and parnasa is never easy and the rabbis talk about it a lot, you know, how challenging it is to be able to make ends meet. And that's true because that reminds us that we are creatures in the face of a reality greater than ourselves. But Chava here expresses it by saying, Kaniti Shatashem, that a person that, uh, that uh, either it means I've acquired a person with Hashem, or it means a person, that it means, um, uh, you know, where I've in a certain sense uh, acquired Hashem. In other words, she has a certain divine experience in the, in the process of birth. And then she has Hevel, who's the younger one. A lot of people make a big deal out of their different professions. I'm not going to go into that so much, but there is a difference in the profession. One is Roetzon, which is, yes, very typical of uh, the Jewish people throughout history, especially throughout the period of the Avot, that they were shepherds. That had to do with the fact that they were nomadic, I think, more than anything. Um, not necessarily some specific uh, critique or antipathy to uh, farming, because you see that, in fact, in Eretz Israel, they're supposed to settle and they're supposed to farm. So many people try to bring some kind of a, uh, that the Torah somehow has a negative view of farming, but I don't think that's the case at all. But, the, but you have two things. You have, you, have, you have Hevel, who is a shepherd, and you have Cain, who is working the land. Now, of those two things, actually, the interesting thing, and I think this is what, what, what jumps out at me, is that Cain is actually, it would seem, it would seem, closer to his father's vision of what life was supposed to be than heaven. Because after all, Adam was supposed to work the land. Hashem said, It's going to be difficult and there's going to be all kinds of frustrations and you're going to have thorns and thistles instead of what you planted. Fine. But, but that was what Adam's vision of what life was going to be, cultivating the land. And in fact, what did Hashem say originally? He said to him, you're going to work the land and guard it. You're going to take care of the world by cultivating the land. So that was definitely from the very beginning what Adam was going to do and this is what Cain is doing. And Cain, of course, is the firstborn, seemingly the, one, the only one that the mother has anything to say. Right? It says, I've acquired uh, a man with Hashem or I've acquired a man and Hashem, whatever, however you interpret that pasuk. But the idea is that she has... Uh, you know, she had something to say about the significant occasion of the birth of Cain. Okay, that she doesn't say anything about Hevel. In fact, Hevel just means like fleeting. It, 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 which, which in the end makes, makes sense maybe, you know, in retrospect. But at the time, he obviously what, didn't uh, garner as much respect. He wasn't seen as being as significant as Cain. That seems very clear. Cain means acquisition. Signif- Hevel is something you can't grasp. Hevel is something fleeting. Hevel is something that passes by. So there's something lacking in substance in Hevel, or so it sounds like. And there's something very substantive about Cain. In fact, Cain seems to be the one who would be the inheritor of his father's legacy. Now, I'm just, I'm just describing what I'm reading here, okay? I'm not saying anything deep. I'm just describing it. Now, the, 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 the point that I, what we want to get to is why this story is so important, okay? Now, Vahimi Ketsyamim. And again, that language is very vague, at the end of time, at the end of days, how many days? Years? 
could be years. Yamim a lot of times means years actually in the Chumash. When Yamim is used by itself. You know, it could mean a year. We don't know. It says that Vayavekain Nipuriha Adama Min Chalashem. This sounds very good. Cain brings from the fruit of the land an offering to God. He's honoring God from the fruits of his labor. He's acknowledging that the blessing that he receives comes from God. That seems like a very noble thing. That seems like a very wonderful thing. He's the first, it's the first example we see of somebody acknowledging God, thanking God, worshiping God. Very impressive, you would think. Then it says, Hevel also brought from the firstborn of his sheep and from their from their best, or it could mean from their fats, but either way it means from the best, from the number one, from the first, from the best. So Bechorot implies the, first, the very first, meaning there was priority, and Mechel Vehen is the best, either the choicest part of the animal or the best of the animals. Either way, the idea is that it's the first and the best. That's what Hevel gives. And it says, Vayisha Hashem el Hevel vel minchato. That Hashem responded to, He accepted the offering of heaven. What that exactly means, nobody knows. The commentaries offer different explanations. At the end of the day, nobody knows. But somehow, it was conveyed to Cain and Hevel, whether it was some kind of a divine intervention, whether it was some kind of a uh, that, that, that Hevel saw greater success and blessing in his work as a result of this worship of God and therefore he interpreted it and he saw from that that God approved of and, 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 and validated his service. Whatever, we, we, can, we can invent different explanations but when the Torah gives you a, a concept and doesn't specify, that means that it's not that important. And that's, at least that's how I read it. In other words, the point was that they got the message that God accepted the offering of, of Hevel and not of Cain. And whether that was from some kind of miraculous sign, or it was simply the fact that Hevel was more successful afterwards and he attributed it, saw from that God's blessing and the hand of God in his life. Or it was the fact that, you know, from prophecy he knew, or whatever it was, somehow it was conveyed to Hevel that his offering was accepted. Somehow it was, uh, it was clear to Cain, Cain, that God did not find favor, turn towards, heed. The offering of Cain. And again, that would be whatever the opposite is. Whatever Hevel got, Cain didn't get. If it was a divine sign, if it was, uh, if it was some, kind of a, uh, some kind of a message that came through more success or lack of success or however. And Cain was very angry and he fell on his face. Now these are two different emotions. Right? What's anger? Anger is directed outward. Vayicha lekayin me'od means he's angry towards someone or something outside of himself. Vayipilu panav is some kind of a shame or some kind of a sadness or some kind of a feeling of inadequacy. Like nefilat apayim that we do, tachanonim, even though nowadays in the Sephardic communities in general we don't actually do on the ground, like they actually used to fall on the ground and do tachanunim every day. The Gemara talks about it. That that's how they did nefilat apayim. After the, after the, if they had, I'm not even sure they did, 
But whatever they did for Tachanunim, they would go on the ground. It's, it says in the Gemara, then the Talmud, they would do that. So that was a sense of shame, inadequacy. There's anger and there's shame. So these emotions are boiling inside of Cain as a result of his not being accepted, his offering not being accepted by God. Now, at this point, again, we're still kind of in the dark. What is so important about this story? So Cain is immature guy that he's upset that God doesn't accept his offering. And, and, and so he's crying and he's angry and he's feeling bad for himself. That's what's important. And then it says, Hashem says to Cain, Hashem al Cain. And, and you notice that, especially in Breshit, but really it's a theme throughout the Tanakh. God's interactions with people are often phrased as a question. Also when he speaks to Adam, Vayomelo Ayeka, where are you? And later on he's going to say to Cain, where is Hevel? So God opens up a question. In other words, he invites the person into some kind of an interaction. He doesn't make a statement to Cain, but he says to him, why are you upset? And again, both of these emotions are identified. Anger at an external reality that he's upset with, and also some inner dissatisfaction. So God is diagnosing the emotional state of Cain, but he's not saying what the reason is. He's like, or I should say better, he's identifying it, but he's saying why? Now does God know why? Obviously God knows why, but because we are creatures with our own minds and we are in that sense created in the image of God and we have the ability to think and to reason for ourselves, God doesn't hand us things on a silver platter and he doesn't tell us things. He invites us to reflect. He wants Cain to reflect on why these emotions are gripping him. Haven't you ever been in a situation where you're in the grip of an emotion and you don't exactly know why? You know? Right. So he's not going to tell him why. He's opening the door to allow Cain to reflect on his own mental state. Because that's how free choice works. Free choice works that how we're going to deal with the circumstances that we find ourselves in, whether they're external circumstances or whether they're internal, is going to depend on how we choose to react, how we choose to respond, how we choose to think about it, or whether we choose to think about it. How many people are just angry and they don't even think about why? Or they're just feeling down and they don't think about why and therefore they take out those emotions, they express those emotions in ways that maybe even they don't understand the reason that they're doing what they're doing. So... He asks him why. And then he says, If you are better, if you improve yourself, which seems to mean you will be forgiven in some way. avon usually means to carry sin. avon okay? We say Hashem carries the sin. avon Meaning Hashem will forgive you. It could also mean, it could also mean to be lifted up. can also mean God can lift you. Vim lotetiv. If you don't improve, at the door, sin is crouching, error is crouching. Meaning, if you take this opportunity to reflect on what you could be doing better, this is a golden opportunity to grow. But if you don't improve yourself, sin is crouching at the door. And its desire is for you. And you have the ability to control it. You have the ability to, to, to master it. Now, that exact phrase is clearly lifted, cut and pasted 
from just the previous story. Where do we see that exact phrase, almost word for word? Yeah, what does Hashem say to Chava? That when, she, when, when Hashem talks about the woman and the man, she says that, that you're going to have a desire for your husband, and he's going to, he's going to rule over you, right? That was exactly what it says. And it, when, uh, when Chava is punished or her curses is, is meted out, that you're going to have a desire for your husband, he's going to, he's going to rule over you. Right? The exact same phrase. Exact same phrase. Okay, now in that case, of course, the woman was, so to speak, the cause of the, uh, of the problem because she brought the fruit to Adam. So therefore, he, the idea is that he's going to be the one who is, uh, who, who, from now on, who is ruling. And it's not going to be her. She's not going to be the one who, who directs things. But actually, to me, this... this uh, reuse of the phrase in the story of Hevel and Cain sort of suggests, points very strongly to the idea that Adam and Chava are metaphoric. Because that, that Chava is, is representative of the element of the person that leads them away from God. And that Adam is metaphoric, is the element of the human being that leads him towards God. And not that they're actually two, that the woman caused the man to go wrong, but that in the story, the woman is actually a metaphor and the man is a metaphor to, for the two elements of the human being, which is how the Rambam actually understands the story. He understands the story is that Chava is just a metaphor for the goof, for the body, and that Adam is a metaphor for the, for the mind. And that they're showing you that the way sin occurs is that the body entraps the mind. And that's, why, and he, that's how he explains the story that Adam and Chava were really created as one. Two faces, meaning that really they're two sides of, a, of one coin. That, they're, that they really, that the, the woman in the story, it actually, it's a much more egalitarian reading of the story. Because everyone wants to blame woman for the downfall of, of man. But this way, it turns out that the woman is just a metaphor. And uh, for, for, the, for the bodily aspect of, of, of a human. And, 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 the, and Adam is really a metaphor for the uh, spiritual or the intellectual side of the human. But either way, this exact phrase appears over there. Here, what is going on is, Hashem is saying to, to, to Cain, you're at, a, you're at a crossroads. You can either reflect upon what's distressing you and overcome it and recognize that the key to overcoming any kind of distress is to improve yourself and rise above the situation. Or you can allow the situation to overpower you. And, and, and the, the desire... It wants to control you. It wants to control you and it wants to dominate you. You have the ability to control it if you adopt a reflective, intelligent, mental stance and make the decision to, uh, to be the one in the driver's seat of your life instead of allowing those desires to be the ones that interfere. That's, that's what Hashem is saying to, uh, uh, to Kain. Now, then it says another very, very interesting thing. Vayomer Kain el and Cain said to his brother Hevel, but it doesn't say what he said. What did he say to him? Let's go for a walk. Uh, the, the, the Midrashim described them as having a theological argument. You know, as having all kinds of different arguments, but it doesn't say. He engaged them in conversation. And then Cain stands up, he rises up and he kills his brother. And... It's just very nonchalantly stated. It's like, 
there's no description of any fight, there's no description of what the dialogue was, what the argument, if there was an argument. What is Cain trying to do? I mean, it's a very strange story, really. Could you imagine a situation? And obviously the theme of brothers having conflict is a very common theme throughout the Torah from the beginning. You see Cain in Hevel, and then of course you have you know, Yishmael and Yitzchak, and, and, and later on you're going to have Yaakov and Esav, and then you have Yosef and the brothers. I mean, the theme of, of competition and conflict and friction among brothers is, is a common one. But this is over what? That his korban wasn't accepted, so he has to kill, uh, he has to kill Hevel. What kind of a solution to the problem is that? And what is going on here that we can learn from? Yeah. 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 Right. Doesn't use that language. Yeah. Oh, I never thought of that. But I never have never heard that before. That's really that's the most charitable interpretation of Cain I ever heard. <laughs> The, 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 only, the, only, the only difficulty I would have with that, like, if there wasn't the previous conversation between God and Cain, then I could be persuaded by that. But because God just said to Cain, you're angry, and you're, you're, you're upset with yourself, and you're angry, and then he goes and does it, it does seem to be out of anger, you know? Like, otherwise, that would be a very interesting, com- you know, approach. I was thinking along a different line. I mean, because I, I, I'm trying to seek what is the essential message. How is this a fundamental story? How is this not just a story about two brothers that have a conflict, you know? And so going back to the story of Adam and Chava for a second. So the story of Adam and Chava is really a story about what is good. Is goodness determined by Hashem? And the measure of good is, is God's will? Or is goodness something subjective and personally defined? Now, obviously, the reason why this story speaks so resonantly to all of us is because that is the essence of our society. Our society is all about personal freedom. Live your life totally the way you want to live it. Nobody can tell you, as long as you don't hurt somebody else, nobody can tell you what's right and wrong. Nobody can tell you what's good or bad. It's all up to you. You create your own life. Be the way that you want to be. Nobody should be telling you to be otherwise. That's the philosophy of Western society of today. And so we can see that right, you know, thousands of years ago in the story of Adam and Chava, that's exactly what they were thinking and what God's answer is, that there's an objective reality to everything else in the universe. Why should there not be an objective reality to what's right and wrong for a human being? If there's an objective reality to how 
the sun is supposed to go and the, pl- and the planets are supposed to go and the trees are supposed to go and the a- animals of the field are supposed to go. How could there not be a, an objective reality to how a person is supposed to live? Why should and there be? Because God created you just like he created everything else. So just like he created everything else with a plan in mind of how it should be and the other things don't have the opportunity to choose otherwise. They don't have the opportunity to consider other possibilities. They go automatically. We have the freedom to choose, and that's what creates a dilemma of choice. But once you accept, let's say, that there is an objective reality, or that God's will is what determines his good, so there's still, and I think this might be the point of Hevel and Cain, and I'm suggesting this as a new idea maybe that I haven't suggested before. That maybe the idea of Hevel and Cain is that, yeah, God's will, living in accordance with God's will, is what defines what is good. But there's another aspect, there's another layer to that that I think we all can relate to, which is we want our lives to have significance. We want our lives to have value. We want our lives to mean something. And a lot of, you know, a lot of the Tanakh, especially like the book of Kohelet, deals with the meaninglessness of a lot of aspects of life, the fleetingness of a lot of aspects of life. And a person says, I want my life to be something of substance. I want my life to feel that it's something that is regarded. Okay, that it has some kind of a dignity to it, that it has some kind of an importance to it. And so Cain, perhaps, is seizing on this. In other words, if it's not, if I'm not going to define what is good by my own theory, my own idea, my own philosophy of what is good, at the very least, I want to be good. I want to be acknowledged as good. If I'm going to follow God's path, I want to be acknowledged as good. I want my life to be recognized as something important, as something significant. So what happens is finding favor in the eyes of God for Cain is less about actually serving God and acknowledging God as it is about justifying his life, justifying the value of his life. It's still about him. He managed to take the idea, and that's why it's so ironic, the story of Cain, because he's trying to appeal to God He's upset that God doesn't find favor in his offering. And so what does he do? He commits murder. And then he denies it. So obviously he knows he wasn't supposed to do that. Because why does he say, uh, he makes an excuse. Uh, am I my brother's keeper? Why are you bothering me? He doesn't just say, well, I killed it. Okay, so the, obviously he knew that that wasn't the thing to do. And God confronted him and said, you know, the, the anger and the feeling of shame that you have. What is the anger and the feeling of shame? That you're not being acknowledged. That you're not being put on a pedestal. That you're not being uh, regarded by God as someone favored. That's bothering you. Okay, why is it bothering you? Because that's what you're putting a premium on. That's what you're putting an emphasis on. You're putting an emphasis on where do I stand? I want to feel that I'm special, that I'm the one. That God has, that God has love for me. So you're still seeking to make yourself the center of the universe, just in a different way. In other words, the idea of recognizing that God decides what's good and bad doesn't mean God decides what's good and bad and then if I follow what's good, I still get to be the center of the universe. That's what Cain thought. It's that God decides what's good and bad and I let go of my desire to be the center of the universe. But if we don't let go of our desire to be the center of the universe, we're not getting the message. 
And I think that's where, that's why the story of Cain and Hevel maybe follows on, on the story of Adam and Chava. Because the story of Adam and Chava just sets up what is the standard by which we're going to live. But the story of Hevel and Cain is a story of once you know the way to live and you live by it, what's the goal? The, is the goal to make yourself the center of the universe through following God's will? Or is the goal to give up on that fantasy, to recognize that things are Hevel, perhaps, that things are fleeting, that our existence is not significant in and of itself, that we are vehicles of something higher, and that we don't want to make ourselves the center, place ourselves at center stage. And that's why I think it emphasizes that when Hevel brings his offerings, he brings from the first and from the best. He gives his all. He makes it his priority. He gives the first and the best. That means he doesn't attach any significance to himself. And that's maybe his name Hevel. Hevel means something that has no lasting significance. He recognizes his own mortality, his own fleetingness. He recognizes that the only real thing is Hashem. Whereas Cain means acquisition. Cain has the sense of power, of acquisition. That my finding favor in God's eyes is a type of power for me. My finding favor in God's eyes is a type of superiority for me. Okay? And I think that this is what bothered him so much. What bothered Cain was he was still locked in the fantasy that human beings would be at center stage. And that he would be the favorite and loved one because he was the first to bring a korban to God. But why was he the first to bring a korban to God? Because he wanted that special favored position. Not necessarily because God was of higher priority to him than it was to heaven. And I think that this is the, uh, the reason why the story of Hevel and Cain is so relevant to today. We don't think of it. We say, who's killing each other? But it is. Because why are people religious? Why are people religious? Is a person religious and observing mitzvot because they realize that Hashem should be at the center of their life and, and, and that their priority should be only serving Hashem and honoring Hashem and that their own existence is really insignificant except insofar as it reflects the glory of God, okay? Does a person really have that idea? Okay? No, most of the time, no. So what ends up happening? And, I, and I'm not, I, I hate to use examples of this because I don't want anyone to take offense, but I'm going to do it anyway. So if you take offense, I apologize in advance. It's not meant to, to, to uh, attack any individual. I'm saying an idea. W- uh, getting called up to the Torah becomes an honor for the person. So people fight over it. Okay? And people are, or leading the prayer. I want to do it. No, I want to do it. Okay? I'm not saying this about any individual. It becomes a matter of honor. Wait a second. Are you here to honor God or honor yourself? Okay? When the person is doing mitzvot, are they really doing it genuinely because God is at the center of their mental universe? Or are they doing it to show how much more religious they are than the guy sitting next to them? Or the girl sitting next to them? Or the person outside who doesn't come to Kanisar, whoever. Right? You get the idea. So much of our religious behavior is meant to make us feel greater. Not in order to glorify God and make Him greater in people's eyes, but to make ourselves feel greater in our own eyes, or as we imagine, in the eyes of Hashem. And this is oftentimes the motive. And you see in the synagogue, unfortunately, the drama, not our synagogue in particular, I'm saying in general, in Jewish communal life, okay, religious like mitzvot that are really supposed to be about 
recognizing Hashem become about who's going to be recognized in the synagogue, who's going to get this honor and who's going to have that opportunity and, who is the, and who's going to be the focus and who's going to get to the, It ends up being a competition over who is going to be the one because it becomes about us instead of really being about Hashem. And so in that way, it's definitely a part of our religious experience today. And how many people will hate the guy who outbidded them? That guy outbidded me for that aliyah. I wanted that aliyah. I had, uh, I had this, I had that, I wanted to do it. And they get angry. They wanted to be the one to do it. Or how many times will you have a person... I mean, there, there are many, many examples. I don't even want to go into it because someone's going to say that I'm thinking of them. I don't, I don't, want, to, I don't, I don't want to be too specific. The idea is a general idea. People will vie over it because it's about them instead of being about Hashem. And, yeah, no, 100%. That's what I'm saying. Absolutely. And that's why I'm saying Hevel and Cain are very relevant to today's life. We think of them as just some obscure story. Why is this tacked onto the story of Adam and Chava? It's tacked onto the story of Adam and Chava because it's one step to recognize that the standard of good and evil is in the hands of God and determined by God. It's another thing to act, ask yourself, when I am good, what is the purpose of that? What is the objective of being good? Is it to complete God's creation? Is it to glorify God? Is it to sanctify God's name? Or is it to show how great I am and how favored I am in the eyes of God? And that's how oftentimes the idea of a chosen people, for example, was misunderstood by anti-Semites who view us as thinking we are special and we are better, when really what it means is we have a mission that's more demanding than they have. We're chosen for a higher purpose, meaning to serve a purpose for the world. It's, a, it's, it's, a, it's more demand. It's more responsibility. That's why some, you know, people oftentimes, like they'll say, like in, in Judaism, we have mitzvot. Commandments, we have responsibilities. Right? What makes a person holy is Asher Kiddishano be mitzvotav. He made us distinct by the commandments that he gave us, by the mission that he gave us. He gave us a purpose. That's what makes you great. That you're fulfilling a purpose higher than yourself. Not that that mitzvah makes you great separate from Hashem because God now loves you. No, it's because that mitzvah draws attention away from you, it draws attention to Hashem. So I once had explained that, like, for example, the idea, Berov Am Hadrat Melech. I think this is one of the things maybe we said in Israel when we were there, but I'm not sure if it was this year or last year. But uh, the idea that when you're in, uh, there's an idea of Berov Am Hadrat Melech, that when you have more people in the synagogue, it's a greater honor to God. So I was saying that it's not that God says, wow, there's a lot more people in the synagogue, now I'm really honored. That's, God doesn't care about how many people come to the synagogue. He doesn't have a, a fragile ego, okay? The idea is that when you're in a bigger group, you feel smaller. And the bigger your ego is, the less room there actually is for Hashem. Even if you think that you're making room for Hashem, you're not. You're really focusing on yourself. You know, it's like that funny story about, you know, Donald Trump comes in, he sees a guy praying. And he says, you know, he, he, he says, what are you praying for? He says, I need money. He says, here, he gives him, uh, he gives him $1,000. He says, go away. He says, Hashem, now that I have your undivided attention, you know? <laughs> so the, the, but there's a, the, the idea is that a person wants to have that undivided attention. He wants to have that unique attention. When you're in a large group, you feel less significant. I went to APAC. You feel like nobody there. No matter who you are, you feel tiny because there's tens of thousands of people. You're just one person among those tens of thousands 
That is part of this mission. So it really makes you focus on the mission, not on yourself. It's an amazing thing. So you come to a synagogue packed with people, you come to the Kotel, how many thousands of people, and they're learned people, and they're people who are praying, and they're Shomrei Mitzvot, and you say, I think I'm so great because I keep the Mitzvot. Look at all these thousands and thousands of people they also do. You know, we're all together. It's, it focuses you on the mission instead of on the self. And so Cain, by eliminating Hevel, is trying really to bring the focus back onto him. He can't tolerate the idea that the focus is on something other than himself. And since his focus is still in the human realm, he's viewing it as a competition between himself and Hevel. Instead of recognizing that it shouldn't be a competition, it should be a partnership to glorify Hashem. And not for either of them to be the winner or the loser. That's not what it's about. But it's about imtetiv se'et. If you become better, God will lift you up. There's no reason for you to be less or for him to be more. You can both be perfect. You just have to make the right choices and not be thinking about yourself. Be thinking about God and not yourself. That's the goal. That's the objective. Like the Rambam says a beautiful thing. He talks about kiddush Hashem. And usually we think sanctifying God's name means doing something in public that everyone sees and they say, wow, what a Kiddush Hashem. What a sanctification of God's name, right? And, and usually that's what we talk about, especially Chilul Hashem, right? When somebody does something unfortunately bad and, and they're identifiable as a Jew and they, they God forbid, cast a negative uh, light on God or a negative light on Torah, it's terrible. But when a person, the Rambam says a beautiful thing in the Halachot of Kiddush, uh, Kiddush Hashem, he says, any time a person does a mitzvah for no other reason than to serve Hashem and fulfill His will, that is a kiddush, a kiddush Hashem. Nobody saw it. Right? He's all by himself. Nobody saw it. Nobody knows about it. Nobody will hear about it because he's not going to tell anybody because he only did it to serve God. A person who does a mitzvah purely to serve the one who commanded him and not for any ulterior motive. He does it because it's true and it's good and no other reason because God commanded it. That is a Kiddush Hashem. What is a Kiddush Hashem? Demonstrating that God is of primary importance, is the, of the ultimate importance. And that's, that means getting away from the self and focusing on what's really significant. So that, I believe, is what's at the heart of the conflict and why this is such an essential story. Because it's really about the next level of religion. Just like once we have the Torah and the mitzvot, we can have different groups, each one trying to say that they're more religious than the other one. Right? Once you have Judaism, then you can already have different groups arguing who's more religious and who has the right religion and who's invalid and which one. You know, like, uh, you know, like uh, the old story about the guy in the desert island that, with the two synagogues. You know, they find him on the desert island with two synagogues after he's missing for 10 years, 20 years. And he says, that's the synagogue I pray in and that's the one I wouldn't set foot in. You know, it's an old joke. But the idea is we define ourselves by what we're not. We have to have difference. We have to have this. What, so the idea is that Cain and Hevel exemplify, or Cain really, exemplifies the wrong kind of religion. And he, so he eliminates his brother. And then of course, his, of course, the curse is that he's going to wander now. He's not going to have the sense of being the center of focus. He's not going to have a center. He's going to be a wanderer. A wanderer is somebody who can't be the center because he's always moving. And of course, Cain is worried about the implications of that and the danger of that and the vulnerability that's going to ensue from that. And Hashem says, you're not going to have any more benefit from the land. It's not going to give you the strength that it once gave you. 
It's, it's going to be an even more frustrating process of trying to extract your livelihood from the ground now. The curse of Adam is going to intensify now instead of becoming alleviated. Really, it's an extension of the curse of Adam. The curse, curse of Adam was already that it's going to be frustrating, but now it's going to be even worse. And you're going to have to move from place to place continually. You're going to have no center. You're going to have no sense of, uh, of stability when you want it to be the center. And in a way, galut, we always say galut is mechaperet. And I, I think I talked about it recently. I was talking about it on Sukkot maybe. That some of the rabbis say that, or one of the midrashim brings that why, is, why does Sukkot come after Yom Kippur? I think I mentioned it in one of the nights of Sukkot. That, um, that because anybody was liable to something that they required galut, they required exile, they go to the Sukkot, a type of an exile. Now what is that? And, and, and it will be a, a completion of their atonement. What is, why does exile atone? So I think the Rambam explains that it's humbling for a person. But you can understand why. When you come to a new environment, see, when you're in a comfortable environment where everybody knows you, you have a sense of your own worth. You walk in, people acknowledge you. They know your name, hopefully. Even if they don't, they know who you are. They treat you a certain way. You feel a part of things. You feel acknowledged. You feel appreciated and so on. You come to a place where you're unknown. You have to prove yourself. Or maybe you won't be able to. But all of a sudden, you can't take anything for granted anymore. Right? You don't have those bearings anymore. So galut is humbling because you took for granted that you were an institution. That you were somebody important. That you were, what do they call a big fish in a small pond, right? That's what you felt. But then you come to a place where you're a small fish in a big pond. And nobody knows who you are and what you are. So it's very humbling and it requires a person to refocus on the... On, to humble them, to, to recognize how small they are and that there's a bigger reality out there. So galut re- requires of a person to recognize that there's a reality much bigger than themselves as they move around and they can't establish a base for themselves. So they don't have a sense of being an institution in any one place. That was the curse of Cain. But we do see something very interesting. Cain says to God, and I'm, I'm sort of summarizing because we're running late now. But yeah, it says, Gadol avonim My sin is too great to bear. Now remember the language again of Hashem was, Im tetiv se'et. You'll be lifted up. Or you'll be alleviated of the burden of the sin. He uses the word again of niso, to carry. The sin is too great to carry. Now some people interpret it as a rhetorical question. Is my sin too great to carry? Or as a statement, my sin is too great to carry. How can I handle it? What I've done? But Hashem, He says, You've driven me out from the land. And I will be hidden from your presence. Now remember, what was Cain, what did he want? He wanted the presence of God. He recognized that only with the presence of God did his life have significance. And now he's being denied the very thing that he sought, that he wanted. Now, just like I killed my brother, someone's going to find me and kill me. Don't ask who will find him, who is there. There's nobody else in the world. You know, the whole, that's, 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 uh, that's a whole other story for another time. We can talk about it another time. But, uh, but the point is, he's afraid of his own vulnerability and weakness, having no base, having no stability. Okay? And losing his relationship with God, the intimate relationship with God, which really was the whole reason why he undertook this, because he wanted to be at the center. He wanted to be the one that was favored. He wanted to be the one that was 
that was the, uh, the chosen one in the eyes of God. Okay? How he thought he was going to accomplish that by killing his brother? By eliminating the competition. You eliminate the competition and you're the only show in town. And therefore, at the very least, you can be sure that there's nobody favored more than you. At the very least, you can assume that. At the very least, you can feel that you're not overshadowed by anyone else. That's what he sought. But now he feels that there's no shadow to cast because he's going to be moving from place to place without any, uh, without any basis. And in the end, the very interesting postscript to the story, and maybe this is for next year because we're not going to be able to get into it. With, I don't want to skirt over important details. But he ends up building a city, which is very interesting. It describes his descendants very, very quickly. And he says he makes a city. And the city is named after his son, Hanoch. Very interesting detail, because later on there's a Hanoch also that comes from his brother Shet, who is the brother who is the more God-oriented brother, and that is the, the one that ends up being the forebear, ultimately the ancestor of Noah. Cain also has a Hanoch, but he names a city after Hanoch. You see that Cain never again mentions the name of God. Never again is there anything connected with God and Cain. He doesn't say the name of God. Even the names, by the way, if you look, okay, if you look at the names of the descendants, you have Metushael, okay? Basically means to forget Lehatish, to, to, to erase God. Mechuyael, to wipe away God, wow. right? I don't know if that really was the explicit intention of Cain, but sometimes you have to look that, you know, psychologically... You notice there's nothing, no mention of God. He builds a city and he has all these descendants and it has Tuvalkain and Yavah. He has, and, and, the, and the descendants, very interestingly, um, what is a city really? A city is an artificial, it's the ultimate artificial institution. It's the ultimate divorce from nature, divorce from the land. An urban person knows nothing about the land. An urban person knows nothing about where their food comes from. They think it comes from the supermarket, Okay. They're disconnected. You go, like I've spoken to you guys before about this, you go to the mid- middle, Midwest, even you go to Pennsylvania, go, or go, go upstate, you see two things, farmland and churches. Why? I'm not endorsing churches. I'm saying there is much more of an, a sense of dependence on a higher power in, an, in, a, in a rural setting. Because they recognize they're dependent on the soil, they're dependent on the wind, they're dependent on the rain. All of these things literally are their bread and butter. They're not going to be able to live without them. They see that, they know that. The farmers, the agricultural workers in this country are typically very, are the more religious Americans because they're much more in touch with their dependence on a higher power. An urbanite lives in a place where tall skyscrapers blot out even the... They can't even see the stars and the sun and the moon. They, can't, they, they barely remember that they're in God's creation when you're in the... It's like, it's almost as if all these billboards and, and, and buildings are meant to block God out, so to speak. It's like the Tower of Babel. You know, it's, like, it, it, it's to not have it. A city helps distract us from God because it creates an artificial environment that is as sealed off from God as possible. Okay. And what do you see? And that's why I'm mentioning also, what do you see? He has these descendants. One is the one who, uh, Yaval. This is from Lemech already, a couple of generations later. But the point is, he has Lemech. Has, uh, he, has, he has Yaval, who is the first to dwell in tents and breed cattle. 
right? Yoshev Oelomikne. Shem Achiv Yuval. Oya Avi Kol Tofeski Novogav. The first musician. Now you know you're in trouble when you have musicians, right? Right? And then Kol Tofeski Novogav. And then you have Lotesh Kol Choish Nechoshet. The one who's who's sharpening tools. What does Rashi say about every one of these? He says he each and every one of them. He says what was the um, what, what was the purpose of all these? He says, La'avodah He says, they were all la'avodat kochavim. All of these things, whether it was the music that they made, whether it was the buildings that they made, whether it was the tools, it was all la'avodat kochavim, it was all for idolatry. Now, it doesn't say anything like that in the text. But Rashi's bringing a midrash that says it was all for idolatry. Where would he get the idea that it's from idolatry? That, 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 that Cain's descendants were engaged in idolatry. Just as they were making music, they were making tents. They were making tools. Where do you see idolatry? But if you see the context that I was just painting for you, Cain was trying to create a godless society, a society sealed off from having to reckon with God because if he can't be at the center of God's creation, living in the light of God, he can't be at the center. He'll be at the center of his own creation. He'll be at the center of his own city. He'll, be in, he'll, he'll create a musical culture that is devoid of God. That's what it means, avodat kochavim. It will just be for the enjoyment of people and their own fantasies and their own pleasures. In other words, he sealed himself off completely from God. What is the way? What is the only way, the only tool, so to speak, at God's disposal when human beings cut themselves off from any awareness of God? The main tool at God's disposal is extreme weather, actually. What reminds people that they're at the mercy of God? Extreme weather. Even us. When do we realize that we live in a world that's inhabited by more than just human beings? When we lose the electricity. You know, we lose our power. And all of a sudden we have no power for days. Why? Because a tree, because a wind blew a tree, knocked down our, a tiny string, right? And, 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 and now we don't have power for days. Or when, God forbid, there are wildfires, there are tsunamis, there's flooding. All of these things remind us that there's a creation far more vast than our limited realm that we have control over. And that's, that helps us to understand why the mabul was a solution to the corruption of mankind. The reassertion of God's power over the earth was through the mabul, was through extreme weather, was through the rain flooding everything away showing that the foundations are shakier than you think. If there's an earthquake, if there's a volcano eruption, if there's a flood, all of these things undermine our sense that we are the ones who really rule the earth. So Cain's descendants actually were totally wiped out in the Mabul. The only one who, was, who survived was the descendants of Shet for, through Noah. Um, except according to the Midrash that says that Naamah, who, uh, who was one of the descendants of Cain, was actually married to Noah, right? In which case, there was some remnant also of Cain that survived. Yeah. Uh, what is the Yosef Oelimikne? Because that seems to go against the theory. Why? You have one of the sons of Lele, mm-hmm. who is becoming a shepherd again, mm-hmm. which is like a wandering kind of non non city like dwelling, and it's very often associated with appreciating God because of the time you get to sit and ponder things. So that well, I think that it fits in still because a ro'eh is usually a person who wanders, but a yoshev ohel usually has like a farm. It's saying yoshev ohel mikneh, it's somebody who's more stable, has a stable place. Mikneh also has the implication of livestock and more of like a farm kind of life, as opposed to somebody who wanders around with sheep. 
Ro'etzon are more uh, nomadic. I think um, uh, Yoshev oil, literally, he sits in a tent, meaning he, he pitches tents and he has a camp. So I, I think that they're also more, it's more speaking to the idea of stability and rather than moving. Could, could it be that we're missing something there? Because it seems like the second and the third song, music, it creates music and, and, mm. and tools, which is like institutions of society. Right. But being a farmer slash shepherd, we've already seen Kayim and Hagar doing it. Right. So maybe we're missing something about the meaning of Yoshev Ohev and We could be. Like I said, I'm, I'm not fully fleshing out all the details right now. But I do think that in, in particular, specifically the word mikneh, actually. Um, the word mikneh in Hebrew comes from the word kinyan also, liknot. In other words, it's looking at the animals as a kinyan, as an acquisition of a person, as opposed to being their natural state. Ro'etzon acknowledges that the animal is actually a creature of God and that, it's, that you're cultivating and you're helping it, you know, in, in certain ways, like there's a sense of its dignity, I don't want to say dignity, but, you know, significance as a creature of God, as opposed to mikne, which reduces it basically. It's like the term in English, you would call it an animal a sheep, or you would call it livestock. Livestock literally means a living possession of a person. So That's all it is. Son, yeah. What is the first one to domesticate animals? Yeah, domestication of animals, exactly. It was more domestication. In other words, it was subordinating of nature to the extent possible to human design, as opposed to what Noah does, which is exactly the opposite, where Noah uses his ingenuity to make a boat to save nature, to save God's creation, and he has to go and bring these animals at the behest of God to preserve God's creation on the Teva. It's exactly the opposite. He's putting his ingenuity at the service of God's will more like what God said when he said to Adam, Vikibshua, you're supposed to conquer the earth, meaning in accordance with God's will, you're supposed to cultivate it. That's the, you know, the story of Rabbi Akiva, where Rabbi Akiva comes to, Turnus Rufus asked Rabbi Akiva, what, you know, what are, what's better, the actions of God or the actions of human beings? And Rabbi Akiva said, oh, definitely the actions of human beings, not God. So he said, really, you're, what kind of a heretic are you? you don't, in your own religion, you're telling me that God is inferior to human beings? He said, yeah. So, so, so he goes, he brings wheat kernels and he brings a loaf of bread. He says, which one do you want to eat? The wheat kernel that came out of the ground or the loaf of bread? That's the, oh, that's the loaf of bread. Meaning, yeah, so there's potentiality that God created in the world, but, but God gave human beings the ability to use their intelligence and ingenuity, creativity to cultivate it and bring it out. That, that, that's not contradictory to God's design. That's in accordance with God's design to help it flourish. The same way that what is medicine, basically? 99% of medicine is discovering things about the human body or about nature that enable healing, that actually most of the time enable your body to heal itself. Most, most intervent, medical interventions are basically in enabling the body to heal itself and, and, and just finding uh, things that were in nature from the beginning. There's nothing new created most of the time. We're finding mechanisms in nature that we're now able maybe to influence better than we were before. But all of this is, is, is consistent with God's creation, not contradictory to it. So, that's, so yeah, it can always end up being a domestication and an enslavement of God's creation to our, our interests. But, and that's what Cain was trying to do, to cut God out of the picture as much as, as possible and to s domesticate and to subordinate to his urban plan um, as much as he could as opposed to what Hevel was, which was more in a natural existence, and what Noah was, which again was Isha Adama. He was a man, right? What does it say? It says, uh, Noach Isha Adama, 
right? Noah was a man of the land. Of course, he misused it because he planted wine first. But he, but the idea was that he was a person rooted in nature, and 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 he was a person who recognized God's design in nature and that we're part of nature and that we're not the center of the stage. We are stage hands of God, as opposed to being the actors on the uh, the, the main actors. There's issues with it. There's there's a long about Benel and Migdal Bavel talks about it, but it's uh, it's still a little extreme. But yeah, but Bezrat Hashem will continue uh, in the story of Noah next week. And thank you everyone for joining on on Zoom. There'll also be a recording. Hopefully, we'll be able to upload. And um, it was great. I know I didn't really get to see everybody here. A lot of you just have your screens black, but it's good to have everyone here with us.